Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I think for a lot of people, it's because they expect belonging to be there right away. And it never is. Belonging is something you always have to work at. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Emily White. Emily is a former lawyer turned writer. She's the author of Lonely, Learning to Live with Solitude. Emily has also written for The Daily Mail, The New York Post, The Huffington Post, and The Guardian. Her latest book, which will be released in January, is called Count Me In, How I Stepped Off the Sidelines, Created Connection, and Built a Fuller, Richer, More Lived-In Life. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy that you could join us tonight. You've got two books that I found both pretty interesting, so I'm looking forward to getting into discussing each of those in a little bit more detail. But we will start with the theme of the show, which is the parable of the two wolves. Mm -hmm. So there is a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, in life there are two wolves inside of us. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. I found the parable almost kind of hauntingly apt to the work that I've been doing over the past seven years. Um, I started by writing about loneliness, and loneliness had been a really defining theme in my life for a long, long time. And I'd say that would be kind of the first wolf, the wolf we don't like. And I, if you had told me when I was writing my first book, which was about loneliness, 
that I would go on um, to write a book about connection. I wouldn't have believed you. I wouldn't have believed that second better wolf was out there and in me as well. But I did go on. So I feel like I've sort of, I mean, stay within your parable, traveled from one wolf to the other. And I, I, I guess the main thing I take from the parable is just the truth of it, that you wind up with what you feed and that you can choose what you feed. And I traveled from loneliness to connection by making some specific choices and, and, and feeding that decision to connect. And I was kind of surprised with where I landed. Um, but I like the parable because it does represent these choices that we can make in life and how those choices shape us. And so your your first book was titled Lonely, and it was about your experience with loneliness as well as you spent a lot of time sort of studying loneliness in general. Can you share a little bit about what you learned in the researching and writing of that book? Sure. I, Lonely was published in 2010, and I was writing, so I wrote it kind of in my mid to late 30s, and I was writing about a period in my early 30s, early to mid 30s, when I was extremely lonely. That would be the bad wolf. And I was sort of driven to write the book because I needed to understand what was happening to me. I wanted to learn everything I could about loneliness. And so I learned about, I taught myself about the physiology, the psychology, the sociology, everything really I could to understand loneliness and to understand the role that it had played and was continuing to play in my life. And I found, I mean, it's not everyone who can spend sort of four years reading about their demon or their bad wolf, but I found doing so extraordinarily helpful. It was sort of like a sustained period of mindfulness where I just stared at at what the problem in my life was. And I learned a lot. I talked to the, the irony was I, I think one of the things that helped is I wound up talking to just a huge number of people, mainly in the U.S., um, about loneliness, but also all over the world. And uh, it was really um, it was a, a great way to learn some, about more about something that I've been confronting me my whole life. Really. So, what are the main themes out of that book? Tell me a little bit about what what loneliness is, maybe what some of the main causes are. I'm curious about, as as you and I were talking briefly before the show, there's a couple things I'm always curiousness, curiousness, there's a couple things I'm always curious about in regards to loneliness, a couple things that come up to me when I think about it. And one is really the connection between loneliness and depression, or I've heard people say that sometimes depression is, um, it, or yeah, depression is is masquerading as loneliness. And then the other thing I'd be curious about what you learned in that book is about the phenomenon of being lonely while in a group of people or around other people. Sure. I, I think a lot of the confusion between loneliness and depression arises from the fact that it's okay in our culture to say that you're depressed, and it's really not totally okay to say that you're lonely. So people are kind of blurring the blurring the waters, muddying the waters intentionally there. For me, I knew I was lonely as opposed to depressed because for me, depression has a tendency to blot emotions out. And I found my loneliness was extremely acute. It was an extremely intense sense. And I knew what was wrong. You know, depression 
and again, I'm just speaking for myself, is often sort of this global sense of what's wrong, you know? And I knew what was wrong. I felt too alone. And a lot of people or some people who write about loneliness and depression will talk about social depression. And by that, they mean that it lifts when you feel connected. And I think when people say they're depressed and lonely, what they often, but sometimes they are. I mean, you can be clinically depressed and lonely at the same time. But I think a lot of the times I like the notion of social depression. We don't use that term in conversation. It's, it's only used when people are writing about loneliness. But the notion of feeling better when you're connected is just so intuitively sound. And I found for myself that what I was calling depression or what I was calling loneliness lifted when I found more connection. And that kind of flows into the sense of or the idea of being lonely in a group because I firmly believe that you can be lonely on your own and you can be lonely in a group. My loneliness hit at its absolute worst. I used to be a lawyer and I was spending every single day in an office filled with, I practiced a specific type of law. So these were like-minded people who had decided to join the same firm and I felt entirely alone and having, I think there's a, a fatigue that goes along with hiding depression, but I think there's a special fatigue that goes along with hiding loneliness because you're, you have to pretend that you feel connected when you don't. And that's exhausting. And, um, so I think in some ways it's easier to be lonely when you're alone because at least no one is asking you to pretend be something that you're not. Um, it's often, I hear this repeatedly, I've heard from many, many, many thousands of lonely people and a lot of people will talk about, and this is a dangerous thing that goes back to your who do you feed parable. The danger is you feel better when you're alone, when you're lonely in some ways, and that can just start feeding the loneliness. Is there a definition that you use for lonely or certain causes of loneliness that we could maybe explore? It gets kind of pedantic when people start defining loneliness. I think everyone knows what it is. And when you start seeing the written definitions, they seem to sort of start to break from the lived experience of loneliness. I always say lonely, loneliness is a sense, a subjective sense, because you can be with people, you can be in a marriage, you can be anything, of being too much on your own and feeling vulnerable and unhappy and resentful and angry because of it. Um, it's the isolation. That's the problem. And again, that sets it off from depression because so many things could cause depression. Whereas with loneliness, it's this sense of just being, being asked to be too much on your own. And what, what causes that, that loneliness? What causes, say, for example, um, or what are some of the causes of people who are in very similar social situations, for example, one to feel very lonely and another to not feel so lonely? I think not getting what you need from that social situation. I mean, some people, I mean, you know, the idea has been put forward that we have different social needs. And so I might actually need more than you socially. And if that needs not being met, maybe I'll get lonely and you don't. But I think, I mean, and this is where, we just start getting into, you know, what just what I think, as opposed to the research. I think we're entering an era where we're on our own so much. You know, Eric Kleinenberg's book, Going Solo, was a bestseller because he documented what so many people were experiencing, which is the experience of living alone. And 
if you live alone and if you don't have a lot of contacts outside of the home and maybe your workplace isn't particularly social, I think it's becoming increasingly hard for us to make the ties that we need to fend off loneliness. And I guess I'm sort of supported in that, sadly, in by the fact that loneliness rates are going up, depending on what group you look at. But almost all of these studies are carried out in the States. Some are in England, I guess. Um, loneliness is just kind of increasing across the board. Um, there's one exception to that. It's kind of an, an anomalous study involving teenagers. But I think we're growing lonelier as a society. And I... And that's part of the reason I, I wanted to write Count Me In, which is my second book about connection, to see what can we do about that. You know, the question I got so many times from so many people was, you know, how do you feed the second wolf? How do you connect in a disconnected era? And I, I, I kind of attack, attack. <laughs> I guess I explored would be a nicer word. I explored the problem for personal reasons, but I wound up getting really, really interested in what do you do in this sort of, um, in what Eric Kleinenberg's called the going solo era. He uses that in a, with, in a positive sense, you know, um, that you can live alone and be happy. And I think that's absolutely true. But I, I think going solo is kind of a, a another way of what you know, Robert Putnam called the, the bowling alone era. You know, if you get you know, book after book with these titles, they're, they're kind of telling you something about how we're living our lives today. And so you went on to write, uh, you, you referenced it there, your your new book, which I think is coming out in January, called Count Me In. Yeah. And so in the book, you talk about a definition of belonging that is um, belonging equals the sense of being welcomed needed or accepted by a group, plus a sense of fitting in or matching with that group? I found that a really, that was put forward by the University of Michigan nursing professor Bonnie Haggerty in the 90s. And I kind of made note of it when I started my research. But then as I started living the book, I found it was just bang on. Like there's some academic definitions of belonging that seemed to me to just kind of fly right past the point. And I thought that one just nailed it. You need to feel welcomed and needed, and you need a sense of fit. And so there's kind of two things that need to be in place. And when those things are in place, um, I explored this through volunteering. I explored it through faith. I explored it through political protest. I explored it through um, neighborhood. Um, It actually is right. I mean, you actually do get a sense of being part of something I keep saying larger than yourself, but I think it's so important because so many of our social ties today are about us and about our one-on-one relationships. And I was, for personal reasons, was really looking for something other than that. And I think what I came to call Haggerty's Rule um, kind of captures what it was I was looking for. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. This can be really challenging to figure out 
And when we try to deal with them on our own, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I recently had a few things I needed to talk about, and I signed up for BetterHelp again. And I choose it because it's convenient, it's flexible, and it works well with my schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash feed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash feed. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You explored this idea of belonging and you you determined that you wanted more of that in your own life and you went out to try and find it, which is really what a lot of the book is about and I think there was a couple things that you you just touched on there that that I found interesting in the book and in, and what you talked about which was that it's that that ability to belong is out there but that it's not necessarily always easy to find and there's certainly not a one size fits all thing for belonging that you have to kind of go out and experience different things and try different things till you find both that that being needed and welcomed that you talked about, as well as being needed and welcomed by people that you feel like are, for lack of a better word, your people. Right. Or your type of people. And I think, it's, yeah, the book is my exploration of belonging. And I set it out sort of as a series of takeaways or ideas that people could apply to belonging in their own lives. So I'm never expecting, I'm not, you know, one of the things I did was... Um, uh, volunteer zoo inspection um, of roadside zoos. Like, I'm not expecting anyone to do that, but that's where my search for belonging took me for various reasons. And I think we have an idea that it's easy to connect or it's easy to belong, you know, and you've mentioned having to do more than one thing. You, you kind of have to try quite a lot of things in order to find a sense of belonging. Sometimes it'll appear right at the outset, other times you kind of have to kind of make your way through the woods and and stick with it. I, I think, and I've seen this happen, I saw this happening when I was writing the book, is someone would show up once for an event. So there was a community garden that I attended and found a great sense of belonging at. And they would show up once and they would disappear. And that might be for the very valid reason that they decided it was the wrong fit. But I think for a lot of people, it's because they expect belonging to be there right away. And it never is. Belonging is something you always have to work at. You have to, that's why I liked your parable. You have to feed it. You have to stick with it. Um, it's something in a strange way that I think we today um, have to learn. It's, I don't know that it comes so easily to us anymore. Um, you know, 
I, I start the book, or early in the book, I talk very, very briefly about my father's life. And my father was born in a small town, Kentucky, in the late 1920s. And he, and I think he, in some ways, was the inspiration for the book because he just was born into these various senses of belonging. To he had an incredibly rich sense of place. He had a huge family. He had local place. Um, he had his religion, and he seemed to know how to belong in a way that I didn't. And my father passed away many years ago, and um, I think I needed to relearn. I think, I will not say we, I needed to relearn something that he was sort of given um, that I don't think we're given today, and I think that's a loss to us. So I was like, okay, well, how do I recreate this in a completely different setting in a completely different era. Um, you know, there's lots of things you don't want to recreate about what my father was born into, but there's kind of a, a, a given quality to the belonging that he had that I don't think we have anymore and that I tried to reproduce. And that I think I found, um, and that goes back to your parable, I was astonished at how much belonging is out there, um, kind of just waiting for us. And it was an amazing discovery. It was an amazing feeling to realize that we still can belong today in ways that look really, really, really different from my dad's life, but ways that are still really rich. And I go back, you know, we were talking about social depression. They just, it gives you this rich sense of connection that is energizing and makes you more enthusiastic about life and just gives you so many more resources in terms of social support and, and all of those things that I think are really good for us and I think we can create it. Maybe you could tell us about a couple of the areas or things that you tried um, and found for belonging. A couple that I thought were particularly interesting were the ones around um, the, the, the faith and then the other around the uh, civic activism around around some of the animal rights. Right. Well, I knew I wanted to try and belong through faith because, um, first of all, the re- first well, there's a couple of reasons. You know, people are still engaged in faith in a way that they're not engaged in. You know, the PTA anymore. So I knew I wanted to try it. And Chris, the is, also- Chris belongs to three or four different PTA groups <laughs> across the city. He doesn't have any kids, and but no, but it's a. Go. He just goes. Is he a Shriner too? <laughs> yeah. he, well, only in his house. He's I got a. Go he's got a little car here. Um, so a lot of people are still engaged in faith, right? So I knew it was something I wanted to try again because I, I had a religious education, um, meaning I went to Catholic school until I was sixteen, and I had kind of, and that was maybe the one sort of sense of belonging that I was given, though it's like, you know, all sort of fraught today. This was in the 70s. I started Catholic school. Um, and I, I did find a sense of belonging there. And I, I kind of tried to get away from it into other religions. And it just wasn't working. So I had to come back to Catholicism. So part of the book is about me trying to, but, but, me trying to navigate finding a sense of belonging through faith. And it, it's tricky. And I come to this as someone who doesn't have trouble with faith um, 
uh, it wasn't a matter of me trying to cultivate belief. I mean, that was sort of already there. And I would never suggest to anyone that they go down this path, you know, and try and force themselves to believe in, in something they don't believe in. That just isn't going to work, right? Um, but if you kind of are already kind of tilted that way, um, faith was interesting because um, we tend to be, or I was born in 1970, you know, I was born into a faith tradition. It wasn't a choice I made. It was something that was handed to me. Um, and kind of trying to make that work many decades later in the here and now was interesting and challenging in all sorts of ways that I wasn't expecting, um, but was also very rewarding. So that was kind of the intuitive thing that I did, which was kind of what happens when you try and find a sense of belonging through faith, and that was kind of a fraught area for me because I'm gay, so you kind of pair homosexuality up with Catholicism and you just get kind of like, you know, electric sparks flying. But it's still, it still kind of worked. Um, whereas the political protest, I did a lot of work. I, um, I used to be an environmental lawyer, and I did a lot of work in the book. Um, one of, you know, one of the kind of overarching principles that guided my work in the book is that, you know, to belong, you sort of have to root it in what you value. You know, if you if you start looking for belonging in something you don't particularly care about, you know, in my case, say, team sports, which I'm not putting down by any sense, it just, it's just, it's not going to take you anywhere because to me, team sports just, they don't, they don't resonate, they just don't connect with anything. Whereas for me, animals have always been, I became an environmental lawyer largely to protect uh, species. And um, they've just mattered so, so, so much to me my whole life. So I thought, what can I do? You know, I know there's got to be a way of belonging through animals. Um, and I tried, uh, since I had a very old cat at home at the time, I couldn't foster, I couldn't volunteer at animal shelters. So I wound up, quite to my surprise, um, and this is what I mean by you got to feed it, you got to go where the, you know, where the arrows are pointing. Quite to my surprise, I wound up with an animal protest group in Toronto called Pig Save um, that involved bearing witness um, near an abattoir on a very, very busy roadway in Toronto, which is a massive city. Um, and I found it, it was one of the most complicated forms of belonging that I found, not because of what I was being asked to do, though it is hard if you don't have any experience uh, protesting if you don't have any experience sort of holding a sign on the edge of a roadway as I did. But you, you, I'll just put it as an aside. You get used to holding a sign on a roadway very, very fast. Um, but because I think, you know, protest involves us joining together, and we don't do that so much in public anymore. So I think my caring, which really started out being about animals and, and did take me into all these really interesting places related to animals and people who cared about animals also taught me a lot about kind of joining with others in public today and how um, unaccustomed some of us, many of us, are to it today. I really had to learn that it was okay to kind of stand with a group in public and, and uh, you know, our cause happened to be pigs, with which a lot of your listeners won't care about or agree with, and that's okay, but I think what's important is learning to stand together for something. And um, I now feel that that's a skill that I have that I can apply um, 
in other areas, uh, you know, if it's climate change or if it's uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, you know, I know how to do that now. And I, I, I would, re- I, 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 you know, if people take one thing from the book, I mean, I'd, I'd like them to take a lot from the book, but one thing would be, you know, learn how to, to be with other people about a cause that you care about because it's a, it's a really great skill to, to have. Well, that part of the book was striking because you, you said something there that I thought was really, really interesting. And it was that um, you were out there, you know, standing on the roadside sort of protesting about the treatment of these animals and that you realized that there were people who really hated what you were doing. And it, and in a lot of cases, it had a lot less to do with the fact that you what the cause was, but that that in our culture today, caring too much about something is oftentimes looked down upon. It's considered uh, unhip or not cool, and that and and that that caring about things in itself was what was being judged. Yeah, I felt that it took me a long time to figure. I mean, I was with the protest group for quite a while, and people would always scream the most banal comments. Um, you know, I love bacon. You know, they'd be screaming from cars. So they'd be completely protected. And they were also isolated in their own little vehicles. You know, I love ham. I love bacon. You know, you'd hear the same things over and over. And I couldn't figure out why these people were doing this. I mean, a lot of people drove past. Or a lot of people would honk and support. But a lot of people felt compelled to scream their love of bacon, which is really not something... No matter how much you like your BLTs, most people feel compelled to scream about. So I thought, why are they doing this? And the more I stuck with it and the more I looked at people's faces as they were screaming at me, which you also get used to, um, I realized it was caring. Just as you said, they didn't like, you know, in an individualist culture, which we have in spades, you're not supposed to say that you're connected to something else or that what happens to another creature affects you or upsets you. You're supposed to be in your own little self-contained bubble. And if you step out of that and you start pointing to all the links between us or saying, you know, what happens to that miserable, miserable pig in that horrendous pig truck affects me, you're kind of breaking the rules of individualism. And that's really, really harshly judged. You know, you're called, I was called all sorts of things. I've got a pretty healthy ego. So, you know, calling me names doesn't really matter. Um, that also helped with my gay Catholicism, but, and, and I, and I know other people won't be like that, but it, it was amazing the extent to which people are invested in, in individualism today are invested in the idea that we create our own destinies or that we're all responsible for ourselves or that we're not linked. And that was spelled out for me very, very, very clearly in my caring project. Yeah, I think it's. You know, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but when you were talking about the feeling of being out there and initially being embarrassed to be out there and being embarrassed to care about something, that really hit home with me because there is such a, there's a real vulnerability to showing that you do care about something and that you're willing to, to stand up for it. And I realize that's something that I am myself, I get very anxious about. Maybe it's starting to change, but if you take a stand for something, you're sort of judged and I think that's a massive, massive shortcoming in our culture, this hesitation we feel about coming together and taking a stand. Connection is part of that. There's a very 
very deep sense of connection and belonging that flows, I mean, I don't want to lose sight of the subject, from being part of a group like that. Because when you do overcome the anxiety that you feel, and it's not easy. I'm not suggesting that people are going to go out and do this. For me, it was really, really important to challenge that anxiety. When you are able to connect in that way, it's a very deep, deep sense of connection that you feel to the other people that you're with in that group. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. We talked a little bit earlier about belonging versus connection, but you, there's this idea of public versus private um, belonging or connection, and that that private connection tends to be very intense. So, um, you know, we've got our we've got our good friends, and we share a lot of things, but that public belonging tends to be a less intense thing, and that that is not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing in a lot of ways. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I um, love, you know, I I describe public belonging, what people used to call a civic life, you know, and my editor in sort of a demoralizing moment said, you can't use that phrase because no one's going to know or most people aren't going to know what you're talking about anymore. And I thought, my gosh, she's She's right. right. (laughs) No, she's right. We don't know what a civic life means anymore. So I, I, I kind of stuck with the terms private, which everyone today understands, and public, which is a little more counterintuitive, doing things that don't involve, you know, some of these groups that I joined, I did make friends, but a lot of them, like the community garden, you don't know people's last names, you don't know where they live, and it doesn't matter, because you're still part of the group that's doing the the gardening and tending to the tomato beds, and you get to know them in this way that's less intense. And we see that as a failing. Well, you know, these people aren't your BFFs. Well, you know, and I, I have BFFs and they're fantastic people, but we need more than that. You know, and people sometimes say they're too tired to go out. And I, I say that too. And sometimes what we mean by that is I'm too tired to go and kind of have a high voltage conversation in Starbucks about my personal life. You know, I just, it's too much. And there's this wonderful ease that comes with being with people, not having to talk possibly at all or not having to say much. Um, and again, this is getting back to what my dad had. Like he kind of seemed to have this intuitive sense of being with people without, you know, he wasn't one to, you know, kind of have a lot of conversations. But 
you can be with people in the public sphere or in the civic sphere in a way that's different and it's relaxing because you're not sharing secrets. Um, you're doing things, you know, there's, there's a, there's a wonderful sense of just, you know, having an activity as opposed to just talking. Um, it's great for introverts. You know, I am, um, in many ways, it sounds a bit surprising given the book, a, a big introvert. And I found that being in these big public groups didn't drain me of social energy. It actually gave me energy because I wasn't exchanging things on a one-on-one basis. And because we have so, so, so many of us have less belonging in our lives, we've kind of lost sight of how important that is. And I think we, we definitely value our private relationships, but I think we might overvalue them to a certain extent or if not overvalue them, they should be balanced with public relationships so that we don't have to be on all the time when we're with other people. What struck me about the book was that the, just the very way of framing that belonging, and it's, it's again back to that belonging versus connection. I tend to think of going out there and connecting with people, making a new friend, or you know, if it's a romantic relationship or... And, and I think as a culture, we, we do a lot less thinking about belonging to, to groups. And it seems to be very different, as you said, than maybe when, you know, a, a generation ago. Yeah. I mean, I was fascinated by Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. I mean, kind of fascinated is probably the wrong word. Like I've read it over and over. And I just, it captured, I mean, not just for me, it was a huge bestseller. It captured this sense people had that we're missing you know, another word that we're not using is community that we're missing community where we have our one-on-one relationships if we're lucky because increasingly people are losing those one-on-one relationships you know people's social circles their private social worlds are shrinking and we no longer have the public world to support us so we we kind of have less support in general but you know the Robert Putnam's whole argument is we've kind of lost or let go of or had taken away from us this public sense of belonging that people used to have, and they used to root their private relationships in that larger sense of belonging. And when you take it away, you're putting too much weight on your private relationships. You know, I used an example in the book where something personally hard happened to me, and it was wonderful to go to a group and know that no, not one single person there had to support me. You know, it could be one person or the other, and I could just kind of go from person to person and talk casually about what had happened. And if they wanted to engage, they could engage. You know, in asking less of people, they can give us more. They, they can provide us with all sorts of different ways of support, you know, in a way that my best friend kind of is called on to sort of be on, you know, when I have a problem, she has to help, you know, not everyone in our life has to serve that role. And if you free people up from serving that role, they can be so many other things to you. And I think that was one of the best things that I learned in the book was just how good it felt. Um, And I think this is why I liked Catholic school as a child, actually, was just how good it was to be kind of part of a group. And that today sounds like the ultimate conformist thing to say. And I think it's actually one of the most radical things you can say in a culture where we're expected to be so much on our own. You know, we don't have to be. We can be with other people, too. Well, I think it's an interesting transitional time because I think that 
like everything, there are there are good and bad sides of everything. And I think that the fragmentation of some of these larger that there used to be is positive in some ways because I think it it allows for I do think there's a value to individualism and I do think there's a value to being able to be who you are and and the the broader that a group gets the more conformity is potentially needed to fit so I think it's an interesting where do you find that that middle ground I've always been fascinated by and um English philosopher uh, Alain de Botton, and he wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. And his his general premise is, you know, he's an atheist, but he looks at everything that we've that we've lost by not having um, religion in the sense of the things that a religion provided to us, as far as the community and the rituals and the and the support and all that. And I've really that really resonates with me because I do think we've lost a lot of that, and yet. In some ways, I think it's very positive that some of the um, l- some of the loss of of religious belief, I think, has had also some positive um, impacts to society. So it's it's one of those of finding the right balance between between those things. Oh, absolutely! I mean, I write as a twenty first century lesbian who, I mean, was born into Catholicism, but ultimately it was my choice to make in a way that. Um, the generations before me didn't have any choice. I mean, that's what you were. Um, but I think it's kind of a baby in the bathwater scenario where we've thrown out in our, in our quest for personal autonomy, which is so important. And again, you know, I'm kind of the living example of this. I get to live a life openly that no one else in my family would have been allowed to live. Um, we've probably gotten rid of too much. Um, so I think, you know, you've used the word balance. It's really about restoring that balance. Um, and maybe we're at a tipping point where we're realizing we've gotten rid of too much and we need to start to work to bring some of it back. You know, but I'm certainly not, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, emphasizing that we all have to be one thing or we have to be what we were born into. You know, choice, my, my chapter on faith is actually me, about me trying to make various choices um, other than Catholicism and exploring different faiths and ultimately winding up back at Catholicism. And that's a very different journey, you know, choosing to be there. Um, I guess in a sense, I chose my tradition, which is, you know, a mix of individualism and, and tradition, but, um, it is about balance and I wouldn't ever want to come across as saying, oh, you know, we need to go back to the old ways where no one had any choices. The takeaway for me that that sort of hit if I tie tie your your first book and your second book together for me was that loneliness is a real thing, and I think it's something a lot of people deal with, and we all tend to think there's a tendency to think of the cure for loneliness as another friend or a girlfriend and and I think what count me in does as a book is points to a lot of other ways to counter loneliness that are not dependent on those individual very those very important personal relationships, yeah. Very much so. And I mean, I think it's very doable. I mean, telling someone who's lonely to go find a partner or go find a best friend is a pretty tall order. And that's kind of the advice being given out that's now. That's why you know, Chris go is find at PTA a... meetings all the time because that, is just <laughs> not, that, that, that has not worked out. <laughs> but, you know, there's this sort of a middle zone where you can get to know people in other ways. And uh, it doesn't have to be a best friend relationship. And you might very well find some good friends in the groups that you join. Exactly. 
Well, Emily, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Your book is out in January of 2015, and uh, I'd encourage the listeners to check it out. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, take care, and we will talk again soon. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a monthly donation to support the One You Feed podcast. When you join our membership community with this monthly pledge, you get lots of exclusive members-only benefits. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. Now, we are so grateful for the members of our community. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without their support, and we don't take a single dollar for granted. To learn more, make a donation at any level, and become a member of the One You Feed community, go to oneyoufeed.net slash join. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.